welcome to Quarantine Spook Show. Alright, this is a, this is a beautiful evening out. The keyboard's sounding really nice in 80s. And I just pulled the pits out of some cherries, so I'm uh, ripe and ready to go. story. The first thing I pull will be the uh, theme of all these stories, and then the second uh, note I pull will be uh, the first story. Alright, so this uh, theme is called Moonlight. And the first story is called Haunting at the Supermarket, Aisle 666. It's funny how so many spooky, terrible things can happen in supermarkets. It's not something that ever occurred to me when I worked at that one supermarket, uh, Kroger, with a C or a K, I don't remember how to spell it. The days of Kroger are long behind me. However, some of the trauma there is everlasting. This was back in my youth, back when I was a teenager in the 1980s. If you're down for the 80s nostalgia, get ready to see the real thing. This was a time when Oingo Boingo was being played on the loudspeakers. Before Danny Elfman was known for his compositional work. This was back when Oingo Boingo meant something for everyone. So it was a. Uh, seemed like a different time in the 80s. You would see Reagan on the television, not really think too much of it. Well, some people thought much of it. It's definitely a spookier time. I mean, imagine a time where you saw Reagan on the TV every day, something had to be up. But that's not, not something I worried about uh, in my youth. I was just like, yeah, I'll work at a, this Kroger establishment, you know, get a nice paycheck out of it, you know, whatever. However, most of their availability uh, when I signed on was only during the graveyard shift. To which I thought, oh, graveyard shift. Well, 
I do like the party. So I think that would be suitable for me. 11 to 7? Sign me up. So, you know, I would, uh... You know, I would do the shifts there, do some stocking, customer service. I didn't mind the moonlight. In fact, when I smoke cigarettes outside the store, I'd always look up at the moon. And sometimes, if I was lucky, I would, uh, see dawn as I left. But this shift was particularly gru grueling. Uh, it was very quiet in an eerie way. The only people that came in were people that had time to kill. See, there weren't a lot of corner stores or anything like that in my neighborhood. So people would come to this Kroger establishment and just, you know, get their needs there. I'm glad I worked at a graveyard shift instead of uh, in the day, you know. People during the graveyard shift didn't carry on the facade that everything was perfect and hunky-dory, like Reagan would want us to believe. So, you know, I'll do my shift. It's pretty spooky. Just uh, loaded some shelves, did some customer service stuff for people looking for the alcohol and cigarettes and all that jazz. We didn't have jazz cigarettes. That was uh, sold by a guy in the uh, alley in the back. He was pretty cool, you know. It was over his house once. It was, uh, uh, so I had like a nice little uh, lava lamp collection, but I digress. So one of my assignments for the evening was to uh, stock aisle six, you know. And I was like, okay, aisle six, you know. It was just a lot of, you know, frozen goods, you know, just something to prep for the next morning, you know, so they don't have to do it. But I remember working swing shift, and the morning people never did extra work for us. And all the work throughout the day, all the tasks were bombarded up into the graveyard shift. So I wasn't too keen on helping the morning shift out. But it was whatever, it was slow, and I was just like, oh, whatever, I'll just do this task, you know, or just, you know, then when I'm finished, I'll just like hang out for the next couple hours or whatever. So I uh, fill a cart full of frozen pizzas and then just go to the aisle, aisle six. But then when I went to aisle six, I saw there was some graffiti on it. Somebody wrote two extra sixes on the aisle sign. One in front and one in back. So it said aisle 666. And I was just like, huh, pretty bizarre. Appreciative of the graffiti, but definitely puts me at ease in a as if it's a horror story of, or some sort. So I have the frozen pizzas and minding the flavors as I stock them, you know. It's just like, oh, I like this flavor. Oh, not crazy about that flavor. That one's okay. I like pepperoni. Not crazy about sausage. You know, ham's pretty cool, but only with sausage. But, you know, those menial food thoughts, not like the kind of vivid food thoughts you get with, like, growing your own crops and whatnot and harvesting it. That's very transcendental, if you ask me. 
But this frozen pizza was anything but transcendental. Unless you really needed it and you heated up at a certain hour, but I digress. So, on this moonlight shift, stashing pizzas. Then I get to one of the, one, one of the uh, sections of the aisle. And I see a body in there. And I'm just like, oh no, uh, this person is deceased. Obviously. I'd be surprised if they weren't. Just the look in their eyes. It's like, yeah, this person's dead. I just found a dead person at work. I, uh, I don't get paid enough to do this unless it was my job to do some sort of mortuary-related uh, tasks. But this was not the case here. I was just... I just wanted to stack some frozen pizzas. I didn't want to get into this, you know. See Reagan on the TV occasionally, whatever. You know, I thought Reagan would be the creepiest thing I would encounter on my shift, but it was not the case. So, I see the body, and uh, there are no managers or supervisors in the building. And I'm just like, well, I guess I should uh, call someone. So, uh, I put my frozen pizzas to the side. I go to the uh, phone available near the cashiers. And this one cashier that I'm friendly with, she was just like standing there bored, just like, you know, no one's coming in. I'm just reading a book, uh, you know. It's about salads. The history of salads. The assortments of uh, putting leafy greens together. It's okay, you know. Made me think of salads in an all-new way, but uh, I'm just doing it to kill time, really. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, I'm just going to use the phone real quick. And she was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to make a call. And I was like, well, yeah. But it's because, yeah, I found a body in the frozen aisle. And she was just like, Nuh-uh. And I was like, oh, check. And I was just like, it's still, she was just like, it's still there. And I was like, well, I didn't, I didn't move it. I'm going to call someone to, you know, pick it up or something. I don't even know the protocol for this sort of thing, if there is one. Just, uh, and she was just like, all right, I'll get, I'll, uh, I'll put some, uh, wet floor signs, uh, in front, of, front and back of the aisle so no one uh, goes over there. Or a caution sign. Do we have any caution signs? I don't think we have any caution signs. I mean, there's not a lot of caution you need at a supermarket. Unless there's a deadly virus going around or something. But that's not the case here. Well, actually, it was the case, but that's a different... There's always a deadly virus. Anyway, I'm making this call so that uh, someone can pick up uh, the body. So then I make the call, and then within an hour, someone picks up. Someone on their own graveyard shift. It was a team of two people, and I guess I, since I made the call, I kind of monitored like the escort service. And it was, they were just like, oh, how'd this body get in here? And I was just like, I don't know. I thought that was your job. And they were just like, we don't fucking know, you know? And I was just like, oh, well, that's cool. Uh, yeah, so anyway, they take the body, put it on a gurney. And they're just like, oh, this body has tattoos all over them. And I was just like, oh, yeah, what kind of tattoos? And they were just like, just a bunch of sixes all over the place, you know? Sixes, like, yeah, like under their shirt and their pants, just like six, 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 six. Some of them are next to each other in a way, so it looks like a uh, three sixes in one cycle. And I was like, oh, that's, uh, that's pretty odd. Uh, someone was really into sixes. And they were just like, well, you know, we've only encountered this a couple other times. Uh, Typically, people we encounter that have sixes tattooed all over the body, uh, 
have made dealings with Satan. Uh, they have had family claiming that uh, they sold their soul uh, to just do Satan's bidding. And if they don't uh, pay up their end of the bargain, then uh, Satan takes them, and then that's the end of that. And I was just like, oh, what a, what a cliche Satanist uh, be doing in the Frozen Isle. And they were just like, oh yeah, your guess is as good as ours. So they take the body, uh, take him away, and I'm just like, oh shit, you know, reflecting on my life and my mortality, you know. And then as I'm leaving the aisle, I look at the aisle sign, and it's just the sixes. But there are even more of them now. And I was just like, oh no, this is, uh, it's pretty bad. It's a lot of sixes. I try not to worry about it. I try to just spend the rest of my shift just, like, chilling out, you know. Not trying to contemplate the frozen body that I encountered or why. So as the shift goes on, I'm just relaxing, you know, smoking cigarettes, watching the moonlight. And then all of a sudden I get really itchy uh, in my forearms, so I pull up my sleeve to look at it. But there's a little six tattoo in there. And I was just like, oh, that's so weird. I don't know. How... At first I thought it was a, book, a birthmark or like a new freckle that I encountered. And I was just like, no, that's a, that's a tattoo of a six. And it's really itchy, and I try to resist to itching it. But, you know, it's just not really going away. It mildly freaks me out, so I just go to the... I find the first aid kit near the janitorial supplies. And then I just uh, put a large band-aid over it. And figure out deal with it later, off the clock, you know. And then all of a sudden, my ankle gets itchy as well, about 20 minutes later. I check my ankle, and lo and behold, it's uh, another tattoo of a six. Two of them, actually, side by side. And I'm just like, oh no, this isn't good. So I try to, you know, I, I keep scratching it, so I just pull up my sock and just try not to worry about it. But as the shift progresses, as the crowd in the supermarket thins out, as morning comes, I just get itchier and itchier. It gets so painful, just all the itching. It's like I'm being bombarded by dinosaur mosquitoes at like 10.30 at night. And I didn't put on any bug spray. That's what the sensation feels like. So I was just like, ah, oh, bug spray, maybe we have some, have some in my bag, because summers get pretty uh, heated here. So I rush to my locker. And then I just spray the bug spray all over me. Ah, oh, yes, the sensation of the bug spray. Now I won't feel like these mosquitoes are devouring me. A little bit more. <coughs> oh my god. <laughs> 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 
Ah. Maybe I need some on my neck. <laughs> oh my god. Oh. Whoa. <coughs> oh. It's a lot of bug spray. Ooh. And then I smeared it all over my skin. Making sure the spray is embedded. So it'll stop the itching. Ah. Oh. But then I remember it's... These aren't mosquitoes that are after me. It's spontaneous tattoos that keep appearing on my body. So the bug spray doesn't really help. It just makes me smell like bug spray. <sighs> so it's... Get so innocent. Gets unbearable. Just uh, the deafening silence of the itch. Itches don't make sounds. The only sound that's made is the you scratching it. The coarse fingernails against your skin. Eventually I, I lose it and I'm just like, I gotta, I don't know what to do. So then I think of the only thing that I can do in this situation. I go into the freezer section of aisle 666 and I throw myself in where the body was found. I just go in and relax, feeling frozen. And then as I drift on to sleep, the ice coldness soothes my skin and I can rest in peace. over us as the cars roll by, as the fire pit glows, I'm gonna pull this next story, and as some squirrels allegedly try to take cherries, it's hard to say, could be possums, who knows. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's, this is uh, it says layers. All right. This next story is called animatronic animatronic rat and his cool band. sat in the circle of uh, and with strangers surrounding him all sitting in chairs he didn't know why he arrived but he just 
lightly scratched himself. Not too aggressively. Because a lot of his 666 tattoos were scabbed over. And he said, well, that's my story. It wasn't the first, mine, first time I tried to freeze myself. It's something I tried to do all my life. But now, knowing this... Hearing about this club, uh, the Moonlight Club, I just, you know, I wanted to come in and tell my story and tell the, the bane of my existence and this traumatic thing that happened to me in the 80s as, a, as an attempt to recover from it so I can move on, finally. And then another man in the circle says, Huh, the 80s, huh? I don't think you had it bad as I as much as I did, pal. And then David, trying to be sincere, was just like, "Oh, was, well, I mean, since you're here in the Moonlight Club, imagine something bad happened to you." Uh, and I guess this also took place in the '80s. And he was just like, "Yeah." Have you heard of a mascot called Animatronic Grat? And uh, he, and David, was just like, "Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, it's kind of just like a knockoff of." Chuck E. Cheese, you know, here they're going out of business. And the guy said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But have you ever been to one of their remote locations? And everyone in the circle just shook their heads, no. Anyone who went to, anyone who went to see Animatronic Rat and his cool band, all those memories are buried in their childhood. And then the cocky stranger said, huh, well I got a story for you then. Check this out. It was my birthday. I was very excited to see Animatronic Rad and his cool band. Because at the time I thought his band was really cool. They had a lot of great pizza, a lot of toys and games. It was like the Coney Island of uh, really. Uh, like childhood fun pizza places with animatronic band characters, you know. They really tried to do a good job with the uh, animatronics, you know. I remember I would watch interviews uh, with creators years later. I mean, they would try to compare themselves to the animat animatronics as at Disneyland or something. And they held, the, held themselves to that standard. But if you looked at uh, pictures of Animatronic Rat and his cool band, they look very dated. See, the trick was they were never able to figure out the human-like movement that they aspired to.
It just looked clunky, clunky and weird and all that. But I didn't care. I thought they were my friends that I got to see every year. Or at least every time I went to someone else's birthday party. So we, you know... It was a fantastic birthday at first. A lot of pizza, a lot of games. I won an above amount, an above average amount of tickets at Skee Ball. And then I, I bought a little alien toy, like an actual bonafide doll. There was a little alarm that went off, and then one of the staff members was just like, Hey, you really kicked ass at, C at Skee Ball. Here's a little certificate that means you got a lot of tickets. And I was like, Oh, cool. But as I reflect back on it, they might have just had that alarm go off because they wanted me to stop playing skee-ball and like spend the tickets before I won too much. The whole like the whole like Las Vegas, uh, you're winning too much kind of thing. Like if you win too much, they look into you, you know. But I was just really good at skee-ball at the time. So I had my little alien friend. I named him Bob. It's me and Bob, just, uh, you know, we just, you know, just went, out, went around and played. Went in through, like, the little plastic tunnels, into the ball pits, before the, uh, the malaria outbreak that would happen at that, uh, specific location. And it was just so much, the beauty of it, it was great. But then finally, there was a finale of this birthday spectacular. We got to see Animatronic Rat and his cool band play live. Now, I knew they were robots and they played the same songs over and over, but I didn't care. I thought they were badass and cool. So we were in the party pizza room where we'd watch the performance. They did the whole set, you know, just like I've seen in previous birthdays. They played, uh, you know, their first song was, uh, The Jolly Roger Likes to, Likes to Party. It's a good song about pirates having a party. And then their, uh, second song was Cherry Blossoms in the Meadow. Their more, uh, soulful song, you know. Hit the poetic side of people. They try to target as many artistic demographics with these songs. And then their next song was called Pedal to the Metal, which was a, uh, you know, a rendition of what you'd find as a cross between uh, Steppenwolf and Steppenwolf and Power Glove, probably. And then they'd have a lot of witty banter in between. Animatronic Rad would say to a uh, Funtime Bird, like, hey, Funtime Bird. And then Funtime Bird would say, would say, yeah, hey, what is it, Animatronic Rat? And Animatronic, Animatronic Rat would say, I like the party. And then Fun Bird would be like, oh, me too, whoa. And then everyone would laugh, and I wouldn't get the joke, but that's okay. It's just animatronic robot humor, you know. I'm sure they're on a different wavelength. Ah. <laughs> uh. And 
and they played their last song, which was different from their usual set. It was one I never heard before. Maybe they programmed a new track in? I don't know. But the song went, Help us, we're still alive. And I was like, oh, it's a very spooky title. So they started playing it, playing their fake instruments and all of that jazz. And when I listened to the song, it could be interpreted as a, a struggling band, you know, trying to stay artistic despite a corporate label. But on an opaque level, it could easily be a, a literal cry for help. And I thought, oh no. Looks like the band is having some struggles with their agents, or their managers, or their label, whatever it is. At the time, I didn't know the more insidious connotations of what that song meant. But anyway, their set ended, and then uh, they were pulled back and then set up behind the curtain. So I was talking to Bob, and I was just like, oh, Bob, we should, you know, we should meet these guys, you know? Figure out what that song was about, you know? Maybe we can, like, help them with their label. Maybe we can be their new agent. And then, uh, Bob said nothing because he was a strong and silent type, you know. And I was just like, alright, Bob, I know you're, like, hot shit, but, you know. Anyway, let's go. So I bring me and my little stuffed animal Bob go back to the stage. And I see the animatronics behind the curtain. None of the staff members noticed that I crept over there. But I'm just looking into their eyes, and they're so lifeless, so dormant, in an existential stasis. And then I look at Bob, and I say, Bob, I wish these, I wish these guys would talk. I wish they could, you know, I wish I could communicate with them somehow. of it and I just uh, just go back to my house and you know not really think much of it just you know it's like oh what a day what a fun birthday don't really think about the animatronics very much so I try to go to sleep and then I hear this very bizarre clicking it was a merge of a the sound of clicking and uh like a modem going off. And I'm just like, oh, what's that? And then it sounds like it's coming from Bob. And I was just like, Bob, what are you doing? I try to get his, try to get him uh, underneath the moonlight to, you know, figure out what his deal was. Yeah, it's just like a modem clicking, and it was really bizarre. So I turn him over and I try to see what his deal is. And then I feel like a really hard thing, like in his in his brain and like his head. So with as much de dexterity as I could muster, I uh, 
rip open a seam a little bit in a way that I could probably get my mom to sew back later. And I look inside and go through the stuffing. And then I see a little computer chip in it, blinking. And it's just like, Bob, what are you not telling me? And Bob remained silent. Again, he's the strong and silent type. But he might be a spy or something. I'm like, Bob, well, why do you have this computer chip in your brain? Have you been tracking me? Again, Bob, the stuffed alien doll, said nothing. downstairs to see it but it was looks like it was just the wind you know blowing it back and forth and I'm just like how bizarre because this is like a front door it's very uh, sturdy and industrial looking it really fastens very tightly with the door frame pretty strange that the wind would just blow it open randomly it's not like a screen door or a back door or something so I close and I try to not freak out, just go back to bed. Try to take a... Try to... I'll put the computer chip on the nightstand, and I'll just... Me and Bob will just go to bed. We'll talk about it in the morning. But I'm trying to sleep. And I hear a lot of thumping in the house. Like heavy footsteps on a carpet. And I ask Bob, Bob, what is that? What have you done? Bob says nothing. So, you know, I always considered myself at an... At the time, I considered myself at an age where I didn't have to go to my parents if I had, like, a bad dream or something, but I'm just like, fuck it, this is too spooky. I gotta call the parents... I gotta call the rents on this one. So I go into my parents' bedroom and I try to tell them. And that's when I find their bodies mutilated. There were bodies were hollowed out, blood scattered, spread all over the bed, all over the carpet, on the curtains. And it's just practically their skeletons with their scattered organs on the bed. And as, as I reflect on this memory, seeing them, I also hear the distinct sound of wind chimes outside their window. And it's going on at the same time as I discovered my parents' corpses. So then I hear thumping, more thumping in the house. And I try to see what it is. And then I go into my kitchen. And then... I see no one else but... the animatronic rat himself. He's found a way into my house. I imagine it was from the computer chip in Bob's brain. I thought the staff members gave me those tickets because I was cool. And I thought that a toy vendor at Chuck E. Cheese gave it to me because he thought I was cool, but no. I don't know why this chip was here. But then when I went to the kitchen and saw the animatronic rat the fridge was open and that son of a bitch was eating my birthday cake I was just like this is I don't so much is happening here 
he's just, the fridge is open, he's just gobbling it up with one hand, you know, his jaw moving up and down, he can't make comprehensive facial expressions, so he's just going nom 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 nom, it was a gruesome sight to behold. With the blood of my parents still in his hands, as he just continues to devour the cake, grotesque thought I had at the time was how would birthday cake taste that good after devouring uh, humans and blood and flesh yeah I don't know I mean it was a morbid thought it was just a I tried to have a sense of humor about it seeing uh, this horrific thing at the time pondering the flavors of cake and corpses going together no, I'm saying I'm saying it's not it's not a ripe time to contemplate the how the taste of cake uh, goes with the tastes of your parents. However, that's just where uh, my mind went when I witnessed it. You know, as a coping mechanism. You know, but then I realized that uh, the animatronic rat didn't have taste buds, so the point was moot. I watched him eat it, I was stupefied, and then suddenly he saw me stare at him in the kitchen. So then I sprint to try to leave the house, and he comes, he chases after me. And I grab hold of Bob, and we just leave the house. I try to tell the police what happened, but they didn't believe me. But that animatronic rat and its cool band location were eventually shut down, so that put my mind at ease a bit. I don't know what happened to the animatronics, though. So, and I still have Bob today. I sleep with him every night. So that's what I think of when I think of the 80s. Another story for the Moonlight Club to discuss and reflect upon. <clears throat> so far, both stories have, take, have taken place in the 80s, so we'll see where this one goes. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. <clears throat> oh, man. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna reap what I sow in this one, maybe. I don't know. Hold on, it's... I gotta... gotta I gotta do... I gotta read this one out loud properly. <clears throat> I 
the greatest blue ribbon selectist in America. Best. Ah. <laughs> 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 uh, Sponsored by Blue Ribbon, goddamn. <laughs> uh, mm. I'll let the fluid of PBR drive this one. around the room at the Moonlight Club and he said, well, that's my story. I was orphaned by animatronic rat and school band. Then he looks at uh, the gent who told his story about uh, his 666 tattoos and throwing himself into a freezer to relieve the pain. He already forgot his name. He assumed it was David. So he just shouted, Top that, dude! And then, uh, the moderator, uh, just said, Alright, take it easy, Bernard. We get it. You know, it was very traumatic what happened to you. But that's why we're here. We're here to discuss it, to talk about it. person was seeming pretty quiet in the circle, not saying much. And the moderator said, oh, you haven't said anything yet. You know, do you want to speak up, introduce yourself? And she was just like, oh, no, not really. Well, you know, I mean, all of you have had terrible things happen to you, often within the moonlight. But, you know, the story's not about me. This comes from family trauma. And they were like, oh, okay, well, we can discuss that. And she said, yeah, well, it didn't happen in my generation. Do you know about the Chicago World's Fair? And the moderator said, yes. Yes, I do. Yeah, a lot of people do. It was a, it was a big staple for America for a long time, you know, part of the whole, uh, you know, kind of part of the way of how, you know, America prides themselves as industrialists, you know. And it's, you know, it's on par with, like, the Coney Island romantization, you know. And she was like, sure, I, I guess. I guess it has that historical tone to it, but what do you really know about it? And he said, uh, well, it takes place in Chicago, I guess. And she was just like, did you know that it was where PBR got their blue ribbon? And the moderator said, well, no, I guess I didn't. I usually, uh, don't drink beer like that. She said, yeah, that's right. Well, actually, it technically wasn't a blue ribbon. For you see, it was actually a medal that they received in the most tastiest and sudsiest beer contest. They won fair and square. But you see, they were already, uh, winning awards all throughout the country so the managers of the company were just like already starting to tie blue ribbons to the bottles 
They tried to pride themselves as an award-winning beer, but yes, they did get a nice little bronze medal at the Chicago World's Fair. And the moderator said, oh, okay, well, it's a nice, uh, fun fact, but, uh, what does that have to do with your family? And she said, oh, it has everything to do with my family. See, my father was a, ju was a judge for the panel of that competition of the most sudsiest, delicious, blue-ribbony beer you can find. But he voted against them. He was the only person that did. He just wasn't too into it, you know? And then the moderator said, well, okay, sure. Well, why don't you, uh, continue on about, you know, your, what your family really has to do with it. And she was like, no, no, I couldn't. I couldn't tell the story without getting sued. And the moderator said, no, no, go on, go ahead. She was like, okay. I suppose I'll do that. said, uh, someone in my family, my father's grandfather, was a judge in the Chicago's World Fair. He didn't just judge the sudsy, the sudsy beers and all that, yeah, you know, he, uh, did judges for, uh, farm animals and livestock, and he was on the pre presentation panel for, uh, some of the more industrialist feats that the showcase had to offer. But I know we had a good time there, except for the fire that occurred. After the Chicago's fair ended, you know, he just went back to his went back to his house in a residential area of Chicago in a townhouse. You know, he was just like, oh, it's just a huge festival, you know, globally renowned, you know. But then he went to sleep, and then trying not to think of it. Then he woke up the next morning, feeling more refreshed. Still pondering about the Chicago's World's Fair. Thinking about, like, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on Christopher Columbus, but whatever. But then he sees a note on his doorstep. And it says, Oh, you love PBR, don't you? Here, have a free pack. So we get some free, uh, free Paps Blue Ribbons on his doorstep. And he was just like, oh, okay. Um, sure. But you know, he, now he wasn't too into 
Pap's Blue Ribbon. So he just put it on his shelf and forgot about it over time. About a year later, he goes to a, a celebration of the one-year anniversary of the Chicago World's Fair. He meets a lot of old friends there, just like, oh yeah, they're just recounting stories and all that. Just like, oh yeah, remember the fire? Oh yeah, that was nuts. They talk about the sights that they saw. How it really put Chicago in the on the world's map, and they were just like, yeah, we'll fucking top you Nor you New York once and for all. And it's just like, yeah, New York, Philly, well, Chicago will be the American city, man. You know. And eventually my uh, great-grandfather, you know, invites some friends back to his house, and they're just hanging out and shooting the shit. And then one of them notices the case of PBR on the shelf. his friend says, oh, you, uh, you got some PBR there? And it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, they, uh, gave it to me as a gift after the World's Fair, and I just haven't touched it since. And they're just like, oh, can, can I try some? I've never had it before. And he's just like, yeah, sure, you know, want a blue ribbon and a, you know, want a medal at the Chicago World's Fair, you know? friend has a sip of it. He's just like, oh, this is really good. I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm surprised you didn't vote for it. This is great. And then my great-grandfather says, how do you know that I didn't vote for it? And then his friend says, well, you know, people talk, you know, we're all, we're all judges and panelists and whatnot at the World's Fair, you know, some organizers for the fair. You know, we always... Yeah, everyone knows that you were the only one that didn't vote for the bronze medal of PBR. And he says, well, you know, I'm just not too crazy into it, you know. Like, I think it's fine if you're, you know, if you like that flavor, but I just, I prefer, like, a higher quality of beer. And then his friend says, higher quality? This beer is delicious. And he's just like, I, I guess, but I'm just not really too into it. So his other friends that he invites over partakes in the PBR. And they're all like, oh, this is great. You know, even if it's warm and been sitting on a shelf for a year, you know? I'm surprised you haven't had any. Or like that you're not into what you've had, you know? This is prize winning, you know? The best in America. And my great-grandfather says, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, if you enjoy it, I celebrate it. But like, I'm just, you know what? I just... You know, I, I just went with my gut. I went with, uh, Rolling Rock, you know? They were around in the early, uh, the late, uh, like, uh, 1870s, whenever the Chicago World's Fair happened. As I tell this fable about my grandfather, my great-grandfather, if only I had more knowledge of the Chicago World's Fair so I can historically bed some of this information. I heard there might have been a fire there. It's actually fucking crazy historically, but I digress. From what I do know, it's it's nuts. But anyway, my great-grandfather said, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm not too into it. And 
then one of his friends says, you don't want to try Paps Blue Ribbon, 12 fluid ounces. It's the original Paps Blue Ribbon. It's been nature's choicest products. It says, it says choicest on the can. Choicest products provided products provided surprise I got it okay you don't like PBR but this is the original Paps Blue Ribbon it's nature's choicest products nature's choicest products provide the its prized flavor only the finest of hops and grains are used and it's selected as America's best in 1893, presumably when the Chicago World's Fair happened. Therefore, the story takes place in 1994. My great-grandfather said, what the fuck are you talking about? You sound like some sort of like weird like a ad or something. Like you're like passing out like pamphlets and trying to really, really trying to promote this beer. I mean, you don't work for Pabst Blue Ribbon, do you? And he's just like, no, no, I, I just am very... Fond of the beer. It's the it's the choicest beer. And he's just like, look, it's it's the choice choicest choicest and the bestest. Mm-hmm. It's the greatest blue ribbon selectest in America. Best and choicest because it says it on the can. My great-grandfather just looked stupefied and said, like, look, if you like the beer, that's fine. But I just went with, you know, do you don't, do you, do you work for them? And he's just like, no, I just love Pabst Blue Ribbon. I work for them for free, as every American does. It won the Blue Ribbon at the Chicago World's Fair. Great grandfather said, "Well, it's actually it was just like a little metal, you know. It's, it wasn't blue ribbon. I don't know why people keep saying that. I mean, maybe they want a blue ribbon somewhere, but that's not what the Chicago World's the Chicago World's Fair historically did not toss out blue ribbons. It's a myth. So no, we do not give them a blue ribbon. If they have a blue ribbon, that's great, good for them. It was not from us. We got a little metal, whatever." kept baking them on throughout the entire evening like uh paps blue ribbon paps blue ribbon so great the choicest and greatest and selectest of beers my great grandfather says all right i gotta go for a walk i gotta get out of here so he goes for a walk and uh and then uh just uh out of the spur of the moment, out of an inkling of a thought that he had, he goes to a nearby payphone, makes a call, contacts the operator, and they contact a, a friend of his who was a judge at the Chicago uh, World's Fair on the same panel for the beer judging that they did. 
and he said, hey, uh, you know, when we, uh, when we were, uh, when we were judging for beers, did you vote for, uh, Paps? And he said, no, no. I mean, I remember some guys coming over and just, like, being relentless about how into it they were about it. But I didn't vote for them. I was actually surprised they won. I thought I was the only one that didn't vote for them, frankly. And he was... My great-grandfather said, oh, no, I... I didn't vote for them either. And... The other judging the other line says, well... If you didn't vote for them, and I didn't vote for them, and it was a four out of five vote, then... Did they actually win? Did they cheat? And my great-grandfather pondered. They might have actually. I'll get back to you on this later. I might, uh, might have to make some calls. Might have to give out that, uh, medal to who deserves it more. So then he goes back to his house, and lo and behold, it's on fire. The whole thing. Like, all at once. All the floors, ceiling, all that jazz. Just going up in flames. People in neighboring townhouses are also leaving their houses so they don't, uh, so they don't get burned either. My great-grandfather said, Oh my god, what's happening? And then his friends are standing out there with lighter fluid and gasoline. looks at my grandfather with like their tightening their old-fashioned ties and putting tightening their fastening their old-fashioned hats and they're just like you didn't vote for Pabst Blue Ribbon man now you're gonna get burned for it so they start chasing after my grandfather they're uh trying to splash gas splash gasoline and lighter fluid on them from a shower nozzle that's really loud and will likely be picked up on the audio. <laughs> that's just that's just the sound of gasoline hitting the sidewalk. Splashing around my great-grandfather as he stealthily dodges it. And then it starts to rain more shower-like sounds amid all around him. And the ripe year in Chicago of 1894. And eventually he, uh, ducks into an alley somewhere. The rain still making shower sounds all around him. So eventually he finds a place to sleep at a hotel. Tries to stay incognito. Eventually, as the days and weeks go on, he goes through the motions of uh, calling the judges, calling the uh, officials and organizers of the Chicago World's Fair, recounting the votes that the judges gave, and stating the case like, hey, Paps didn't actually win the competition at the Chicago World's Fair. You know, we gotta give it to the rightful winner. And then the organizers convinced they do it, and then they take the, they don't take the physical medal away from Paps, but historically, they, uh, righted that wrong and just gave it to the rightful, the rightful winner, you know? 
but as my great-grandfather lived on throughout his life. Every day he was haunted by people who were super into Pabst Blue Ribbon, where people were working on their behalf. Maybe not the founders or the company owners, but just like these, this fringe group of diehard fans were just like, you should have voted for Pabst, man, and they would just, you know, set his house on fire, steal his mail. It was so extreme that they even did it to his son throughout his life as the company went on, since the company was around since 1944, or 1844, excuse me. And then every generation was just more, more harassment from Pabst Blue Ribbon enthusiasts setting fires, stealing mail, and now that's a burden that I, I also have to live through. Which number is that? That's a, 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 a one, four, five. Oh, 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 yeah, duh. You mean like this? Yeah, unresolved, unresolved sound. Yes. <laughs> 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 but can't. Can sus chords also be a one two five? Yes, they can. I yeah, so it could be. So if. So if no, so if if PBR. <laughs> if PBR enthusiasts can uh, harass your family for a hundred years, it would sound like this, or like this, either or. Here's here's I think the notes can go wherever they want to go. It's all about what's in your it's all about what's in your heart. It's not about what's technical from some dudes from the 1800s established. If a 6 wants to go to a 7, I think that's totes groovy. That's my belief for music theory. I have the last story here. <laughs> um. <laughs> oh my god. Bug spray is right here. There it is. <laughs> Alright. This final story is called I Love Fidel.
Moonlight Club Circle, Bernard said, Well, I could have sworn that PBR and got PBR got their blue ribbon from the Chicago World, World's Fair. I mean, it said it on the can. And then the woman, uh, Cheryl, who recounted her family's plight, said, No, that's wrong. And yes, my name is Cheryl, because... If I have a descendant who's super who's participating in the Chicago World's Fair, then like my main my name's probably Cheryl. No, it's Denise. But I digress. The moderator said yes, yes. Let's all let's all simmer down. I know we all like to now. That was a good story, uh, Karen. It's, it's Denise. It's Cheryl, right? Denise. I mean Cheryl. Sorry. I'm sorry. You just you look like a Karen. You know. I mean. I mean, the first two stories were just, like, specific, like, horrific plights, but, like, your, you know, yours was more about just, like, yeah, voting for beer, you know, it's for, like, a, for, like, a festival that was about Christopher Columbus, like, I mean, that's horrifying, I'm sure still being harassed for that decision 100 years later is awful, but it's not quite seeing your, uh, parents being eaten by an animatronic rat in a school band, or, you know, just being so itchy you have to shove yourself into a freezer. You know, but it's still, it's still, you're still welcome in the Moonlight Club, you know. But, uh, yeah, we're wrapping up for the evening. What, uh, you know, everyone has their own trauma, their own horrific occurrences here. You're all welcome here. It's all been very valuable to hear your stories to connect with each other and to grow from them and to learn from them and to ultimately let go of them. So as we wrap, wrap up for the night, does anyone have any final stories for this uh, Moonlight Club uh, session? And then there's this one woman named Victoria smoking a cigarette in, a, in the back and she just says, my story is about love. And the moderator says, "Okay. Um, so it's about love. Okay, what's your what's your story about?" And then she just paused with her cigarette, and she said, "I was romantic with Fidel Castro." And then everyone in the story was just very awkward and quiet. So the moderator said, okay, okay, well, if you want to get into it, we're all listening. And then Victoria just said, very well. I was, on, I was only in Cuba as a, on a visitation pass. Originally it was on a, this was still during the long-term embargo. We were going on tour all the government-sanctioned uh, type of things that they wanted tourists to see, and all that jazz. Not as extreme as you'd see from North Korea, but still. It was a guided tour group for sure. So eventually I break away from the group. And I go explore the vacation on my own terms, you know. I get a new hotel room, so no one's suspicious of me. So then, yes, I 
explore bookshops, I explore art museums, I explore the cultural avenues and facets of Cuba, of the beauty of its landscapes and of its people. I meet a lot of awesome people and they just tell me these great stories, you know. Some about traveling, some about traveling, some about just hanging out in Cuba. And I think it's very beautiful and profound, you know. So one day in Havana, I'm just sitting there drinking coffee. And then I hear a table behind me. And they're talking about a party they're going to. It's uh, at Fidel Castro's brother's house. So I eavesdrop on the conversation, and they're just like, oh, yeah, we might, yeah, Fidel might actually uh, make an appearance. Yeah, we can actually, oh, this will be really good for us politically, you know? Like, yeah, right, right. So I listen to the conversation, and they eventually uh, speak about the address of, the address and date of this party. So I think, well, while I'm, while I'm on vacation, I'm going to party with some Castros if it's the last thing I do. So as the night arrives, I go to the abode, and I'm wearing some sort of like fur mink thing. I have a cigarette, and then the bouncer at the door says, "Oh yeah, you're are you invited to the party? You on a, are you on a list?" And I say, "Darling, I don't need to be on a list. I'm always invited." And then the dude was like, "All right, shit, just come on right in." And, she's, and I was just like, yes, thank you. And that's how you get invited to parties, darling. So at the party is uh, all of uh, Cuba's political elites that you'd find in the 1980s. Mostly Castro's, you know. So I'm just walking around and mingling with people. They're talking about Cuba and talking about other places, talking about communism and all that jazz, and I'm just like, oh, yes, yes, communism. Oh, tell me about it. So I'm just mingling at a party as as if... Mingling at the party like any party I would anywhere in the world. And then... Across the room, I see him. Fidel Castro himself. He's smoking a cigar, just like I imagined he would. And it's just like, uh, if I didn't know any better, I'd say that was the sexy, sexiest man alive. In his green um, army suit. That, that outfit he always wears, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but needless, needless to say, I was swept off my feet. And the first time in my romantic life, I was too afraid of coming onto him. The words, they couldn't come to me. I was just swooned by the sight of him, by his beard, by his little hat. Eventually, I just have another drink, 
I just grab some wine from the other side of the room. I talk to, uh, I talk to some people about the, uh, libraries and Cuba and whatnot. And I just pass it off as just, like, typical conversation, like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yes. Beautiful books, beautiful libraries, wonderful art books. I love going to libraries. I love sitting in there for hours. And, and then suddenly I turn around, and there's the man himself, Fidel Castro. And he said, I didn't mean to interrupt your riveting conversation, but I think you're the most beautiful woman here. I thought I would tell you. And I thought, oh, Fidel, you flatter me. I tried really hard to play hard to get with Fidel Castro. And I say, ah, I'm sure you've seen more beautiful women on your world travels, on your diplomatic trips, in various facets of your life. And then he just said simply, not like you, my darling. And I say, oh, darling. I say darling. If he says darling, that surely must mean we're compatible. And I won't go into the details of that night, but it was hot and it was heavy. This romantic evening with Fidel Castro. And then we spent a couple nights like that. During the day, he goes off doing uh, dictator stuff, I guess, and then, and then he comes back, and then we fuck. Simple as that. And then I just say, Fidel, darling, I'm only, you know, I have a job to go to in uh, in the states, you know. My visa for vacationing only lasts for so long. And he says, Don't worry about it, darling. I'll take care of it. You can stay as long as you'd like. As long as you'd like. And I say, oh yes, I shall. So, weeks turn into months. Sometimes we go on public outings on dates. Sometimes we just make sweet love in the moonlight. And sometimes I just go off on, go off on my own in Cuba, in Havana. Going to libraries, going to museums. I have my life and he has his. But he lets me crash at his place whenever. And then when I do, we fuck like bunnies. Like prize-winning breeding bunnies. Black as the night sky. Not a reference to any specific bunnies. Or is it? the romance goes on for six months at this this point and I can tell that he's growing a bit bored of me talking about other political shenanigans talking about dodging assassinations because he was a lot of people tried to assassinate him it's actually it's historically remarkable but I digress and he didn't he was never assassinated which is the other that's that fucking guy. That's why I love him, you know? No one can successfully kill him. 
And how is that not sexy? <laughs> but I notice he gets word of me, so I don't know what to do about it. I try to think, well, how can I demonstrate my value to show that Fidel needs me as much as I need him? So I go to the libraries in Cuba and try to figure things out, read as many books as I can so I can discuss as much as I can, but even still, I still seem to board him. I try to think and I try to ponder. way I can think to seduce a man who has it all is to do something that no man has ever seen before. There are a couple books I read in the Cuban libraries that refer to specific rituals, a specific darkness that exists humankind in the universe. So I read those books more thoroughly, and they lead me to more books, and eventually I may become a master of the occult. So I think the only way I can win Fidel's heart is to summon the dead itself. It's a feat no man has accomplished, and he's the kind of man that wants to accomplish feats. If he can be the first dude that can make contact with the dead, that would give him such a fucking raging boner. Boy, boy howdy. And that boner will be mine. So, as I'm crashing at his house, I go into the room that we share together. He's off doing, like, diplomatic stuff, politician, dictator things, smoking a lot of cigars, surely, with his little green outfit, you know. God bless it. It's a stellar outfit, but he does wear it a lot. We've had romantic conversations about it, but he's not going to change that for me, so who knows? So during this day, I dabble with the ritual, make sure I got it right, and then I think, okay, I'm ready. So he comes over and he's just like, oh yeah, let's make love, but I can tell the passion is in his eyes. So I say, Fidel, I have something to show you. And he's just like, oh, and I'm just like, yes. You see, I've developed the ability to contact the dead. How would you like to be the first politician and nation leader to make contact with the dead. And he says, well, that, that gives me a boner. And I'm just like, yeah, I bet it does. So I'm gonna fucking contact some ghosts. We're gonna get a hard on. Gonna be on par with the discovery on fire. Forever associated with your name. And he was just like, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. If you can do that, yeah, sure. Just like, all right. So I 
perform the ritual. I, uh, you know, a lot of the ritual things I got from, like, Western occult books, so it's a bit dicey, but I do what I can. I do some chants and all that jazz, light the candles, and then eventually we have contact with ghosts. They swirl around, around the room like a hurricane wind. I say, spirits, are you with us? And then they bellow, yes, yes. So, so I say, yes, all right. My lover has some requests and wants to make contact. Fidel says, oh, this is amazing. Just like, all right, Fidel, take the lead. <coughs> Whatever you want to say to the spirits, just now's the time. And he says, okay. Spirits, I want you to help me get laid. And I'm just like, what? And he's just like, help me get laid, you know? Just have a lot of sex with a lot of people. If you could do that, that'd be swell. And I'm just like, Fidel, what the fuck? And he was just like, what? They're spirits, they can do cool shit, you know? And I was just like, Fidel, but I thought we were like, you loved me. And Fidel was just like, well, you know, I was like sleeping with other people. And he was, and I was just like, oh, but Fidel, I thought we had something special. Oh, my fragile heart. Ugh. And Fidel was just like, well, we don't, you know, we can use the spirits, whatever you want. And the spirits said, use us. And Fidel was just like, well, not like that. And then suddenly there was a bellow and a hurricane. The house was shaking. very quiet me and Fidel we look at each other in the most intimate way I can ever remember and he's just like what happened I'm just like I don't know and then he says you really need to work on your Spanish and I'm just like now's not the time for that conversation so I go and we look around the house and all of a uh, all of the servants that uh, stayed at his house are dead. He tries to make some phone calls to some political colleagues and some other contacts as well, but they're all dead. And he's just shaking his head, rubbing his forehead. He lights his cigar and says to me, I think he should leave. And I say, Fidel, but I love you. I contacted the dead and the spirits for you. And he just shakes his head and says, I think you should leave. So I go, I pack my things. I go back to America. I stay at a hotel until I get a place of my own. Unable And unable to cope with the loss of such a harrowing breakup. I came here to the Moonlight Club, and I guess you're a new moderator, but that's my story. Fidel's long been deceased, but I haven't been able to contact him because he doesn't want to talk to me. So the moderator says, well, uh, that's a lot. Um, well, I think this meeting for the Moonlight Club is adjourned. 
Uh, I think we've all learned from each other. And then Victoria says, wait, 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 I... No, that's, that's not the end of my story. And the moderator says, oh, well, okay, Victoria, well, if you want to continue with your Fredell love story. And she said, it's not a love story, it's a harrowing breakup. I contacted the dead. I don't think you understand. I can contact Bernard's parents. I can do... I can taunt, I can contact uh, that one person's uh, great-grandfather. I can do all of that. You don't understand what I can do. And the moderator says, Okay, Victoria, well... I mean, what are you, what are you getting at here? And Victoria says, Fidel's here, you know. The moderator says, What? And Victoria says, Yes, I summoned him. And I love him. He hates what I've done to him, and he wants vengeance. And then the moderator says, "Okay, well, if he's here, we uh, all right, let's all let's all get out of here." So everyone in the Midnight Club, they all leave. And the moderator says to Victoria, "Like Victoria, you gotta you gotta leave too. Uh, you don't want a uh, deceased spirit to have vengeance on you. That doesn't look good." It's never good for anyone. And she's just like, I don't care. I love Fidel. I'll take whatever vengeance he has upon me. The moderator just says, Okay, alright. So then they are, they're all outside of the building. A lot of lights flash inside of the building where they had their meeting. And they're all waiting outside because they're all anticipating how Victoria is gonna make amends to Fidel, or how Fidel is gonna take vengeance on Victoria. Eventually, 20 minutes go by, and Victoria comes out of the building, and she looks very solemn and sad. And then the moderator says, Well, what happened? I thought, uh, after all the fucked up shit you did to Fidel, I'm sure he would have taken vengeance on you. And then Victoria looked up at the moderator. And then just said, Fidel doesn't even care. I'm, I'm still, I'm still getting to know the, getting to know this keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> that Fidel story. That Fidel that story was, was story. that was fucking nuts. That was. Like, that, that was. I thought the animatronic. <laughs> I like the animatronic rat. Rat story was like really fucked up. Fidel was just like a little. That was. International carry. Yeah, that was like a. That's going in like a best of list for sure. Goddamn. Also, the uh, the bestest Americana story. Was, I was. You put that in there, didn't you? I was trying to recall. Uh, well, like historically, uh, the Chicago World's Fair is like so fascinating. It's like it's huge. It's like the event was huge, and a lot of weird shit happened there. And like it's a big uh, fixture in like American culture for like a long time. But like I couldn't like tap into that at the reading the story. Oh, good, good. Yeah, Paps didn't even 
they may or may not have won that contest at the Chicago World's Fair. It's it's up for I don't know. It's yeah, but like they put it on the can because they want to sell beer, and I don't blame them. But even still, because apparently they've been putting blue ribbons on their beers since before the Chicago World's Fair. It's like oh, we got our blue ribbon at the Chicago World's Fair, but they didn't toss out, they didn't hand out blue ribbons. So it's like a whole thing. I don't know. I'm not probably just. Yeah, I'm sure there are books written of it, but who knows? I don't know. I'm sure it's findable, but it's not easily, because I tried to find out what the deal was with uh, Pap's connection with Chicago World's with Fair. It would take, like, hard research, like, at a library or something. So, yeah, I'm going to do a little outro here. <laughs> That's been Quarantine Spook Show, Outdoor Synth Edition. <laughs> oh yeah, this is this has been a beautiful performance experience. Good night. Yeah, that was a. Yeah. I was. Yeah. It definitely took like a good like uh sixty to thirty minutes of just like all right, how can I work this in? But it's I yeah that was that was a lot of fun. Too bad I didn't go with the harpsichord. <laughs>